I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. So, Paul, we often talk about economics as the study of who gets what and why. And uh, one good example of that is America's opioid epidemic. You know, different people are getting different things out of it. The The Sackler family has earned billions of dollars uh, uh, selling uh, prescription opioids. And uh, the, the rest of America has gotten this opioid epidemic. Uh, that's economics. So I'm a child of the 1980s. So I grew up in, in the middle of the, the war on drugs. I very clearly recall Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. And like many of the Reagan administration's policies, uh, the war on drugs was a very libertarian idea that ignores systemic truth about uh, drug abuse and drug addiction and instead cast it as a personal choice. And so for me as a white kid, the war on drugs just meant I had to sit through a few embarrassing school assemblies, you know, and then they would pass out dare to keep kids off drugs t-shirts at the end. But for black and brown communities, the war on drugs resulted in skyrocketing incarceration rates with whole generations of especially young black men sent to prison and communities basically ravaged. There's the cost to human lives. That's the big cost, the pain uh, that it causes uh, uh, people's families, the lost lives. But there's real economic costs too. For example, uh, it's estimated that in 2017 alone, uh, the cost to the US economy of opioid addiction was $1.21 trillion due to uh, overdose deaths and opioid use disorder. I mean, that number is just stunning. It is. And, you know, even more stunning is uh, almost half a million people have died from opioid overdoses during the last 20 years in America. That loss of life is is almost impossible to, you know, to keep in your brain, especially when you figure that that almost equals the amount of people who uh, a number of Americans who we lost to coronavirus last year. Right. And and remember, none of this happened by accident. It wasn't just uh, due to uh, people not living up to their own personal responsibility. Uh, this is a really profitable industry. The Sackler family, who owned Purdue Pharma, is estimated to be worth $11 billion. That, that's $11 billion earned creating America's opioid crisis. Yeah, and really because because the drug trade is illegal uh, and it's in the black market and drug cartels don't often you know, file tax returns, there is no way to know the actual uh, amount of money involved in the drug trade, how much they are, they are profiting from selling drugs to Americans. But there is one person who has a sense of both the scale of the legal and illegal drug industries, Paul. That's right. His, uh, his name is Sam Quinones. He is uh, a journalist best known for his reporting on Mexico and on Mexicans in the United States and for his chronicling of the opioid crisis in America uh, through his amazing 2015 book, Dreamland, which really introduced a lot of comfortable middle-class Americans to, to this opioid epidemic that, that they had no idea about that was ravaging uh, middle America. And uh, his new book, which is out today, is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And it's a really incredible book, and I'm very excited to talk to him.
My name is Sam Quinones. I'm a freelance journalist and author of four books of narrative nonfiction, the last of which is The Least of Us, uh, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I really, I, I love the book. I, I almost said I, I enjoyed the book, but uh, you know, <laughs> given the subject matter, it's a little, it's a little tricky. I really, I was, I was moved by it, informed by it, and and it was, it was, it was really, really uh, beautifully written. Um, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I, I mean, Dreamland, I think, had a had a huge part in raising public awareness of the opioid epidemic. And I was wondering if we could sort of start this conversation by talking about how you think public awareness of the opioid epidemic has developed in the last decade or so, and maybe how that that developing awareness or lack of developing awareness has affected families and individuals who are impacted by the epidemic. My, my experience was when writing Dreamline that there was no aware, almost no awareness, except mm -hmm. for in certain areas that you know you kind of know West Virginia and Southern Ohio and Eastern Kentucky and so on. Um, I could say that that I tried mightily to get find families that would talk to me about this problem. They had addicted loved ones, a, a son, a brother, a, a, a mom, a grandmother, whatever, and and you know nobody really wanted to talk to me about this. It was almost like the early days of the AIDS epidemic when when nobody wanted to talk about it, the obituaries were fabrications and all that. And, and that is really why it spread. Uh, people say, well, it's only now because the middle-class people are being involved that we're paying attention to this. And I would say, I think that the opposite is true. It was because middle-class people were involved that we did not recognize this. We did not, they didn't want it to be recognized. Their obituaries were always fabrications and Nobody ever said publicly, yeah, my, my son didn't die of a heart attack. He died of a, of a, of a years-long uh, pain pill slash heroin addiction. Um, it just didn't happen until the, and I would say the, so the, the, the awareness really was nil when I was writing the book. And there were three lawsuits by counties and those were on hold. I mean, there was very little. The book, I, I have to say, thank you. I believe the book had an enormous role in creating that awareness. And so what you're seeing now is, Little by little, people after Dreamland came out, people came out of the shadows where they always were. They always were there, but they just can't, kind of felt like it was okay a little bit. Not as many people as should come out, but nevertheless, much more than, than had been the case. And this began to prompt politicians to action because they had never really had any exposure to it before uh, in, in many, many areas. And so that's when you begin to see new priorities, uh, budgetary priorities. That's when you begin to see last few years, a lot of investment in neuroscience research and, and addiction treatment. And that's when you also begin to see the great, one of the great um, things to come out of this was this kind of feeling among politicians, particularly uh, attorneys general, that they now needed to sue these companies. And that's what you've been seeing. Those, those, those lawsuits now number, I think, close to 3,000 or something like that. And, and uh, in 2015, there were three. There were three, right? And that is because I think people are, politicians are feeling this, this movement from below. It's really one of the great grassroots movements of our time, if you ask me. It's not organized. It's not recognized as such. But there would be none of these lawsuits um, and money being pried away from these drug companies who behaved so um, reprehensibly in, in helping create all this 
uh, were it not for all those people coming out of the shadows, getting on Facebook, going to uh, council meetings, meeting their state legislator in the in the in the grocery store or at church or wherever, that kind of thing has happened all across the country. I, I'm curious, Sam how how has the opioid epidemic progressed throughout the pandemic? What well, what influence has well, the of course. You know, here's the thing. It was it got much worse. And the reason it got much worse was because the pandemic collided with what the opioid epidemic had become. The opioid epidemic started, as I said, in Dreamland with pharmaceutical companies and pain specialists promoting this idea that pain pills, narcotic painkillers could now be prescribed to pain patients without any risk of them getting getting addicted at all. And that became an idea that became accepted in American medicine, taught in med schools, uh, pushed by a variety of large medical institutions. Um, and that created an enormous new supply of pain pills from coast to coast, right? Maine to California, you know. Um, but then that changed as the underworld began to figure out what we had created through all that. And they began to provide first heroin. Uh, and which is what I wrote about in, in Dreamland. But uh, after Dreamland was published, what you really began to see is the, 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 uh, the I'm sorry, the underworld, pr primarily the Mexican trafficking world, switch and, and understand and come to the realization that, they, that it, growing drugs doesn't make any sense. It's not a very profitable thing. It's very risky. A far, far less risky, far more profitable thing is to make synthetic drugs with no plants involved made in a, in a lab. You don't need land. You don't need sunlight. You don't need seasons infrastructure. You don't need uh, farmers or any of that kind of stuff. And if you get access to shipping ports, which is what they have, uh, very control those shipping ports down in Mexico on the Western Pacific, on the Pacific coast, you can get the access to all the world's chemicals enough to make your drugs year round, not just every few months and in quantities that are only limited by how many chemicals you get. And that's really what has happened. We're now fully in the era of synthetic drugs. We've had synthetic drugs around for a while, but never to this massive degree with this kind of extraordinarily dangerous, catastrophic, really, um, drug supply with fentanyl. Fentanyl is, is a wonderful drug, actually, when used medically. I've had it myself when I had a heart attack a few years ago. It's, it's revolutionized surgery, made surgery possible when it was not in, in many cases. But used illicitly, of course, it becomes a curse, a scourge. And that's what it's becoming now. It kills people very easily. And even when it doesn't, people get addicted to fentanyl. They're at very high tolerance. So there's almost, there's really no true heroin in America anymore. That's been out crowded out. What is called heroin is usually fentanyl and probably other stuff mixed in. Meanwhile, of course, they've been also able to produce, and this is connected to that, produce um, ungodly quantities of methamphetamine. And methamphetamine is in such supply now that the price has collapsed. Places that never had methamphetamine, like New England, now have it. It's all coming out of Mexico. It's gotten rid of all those small-time little cooks that used to make it in the Midwest and so on. And um, at the same time, fentanyl is killing people. This new meth, and it's a very new kind of meth that they've been making in the last eight, 10 years, has been really creating symptoms in people of severe schizophrenia, me mental illness in a very severe way paranoia and uh, extraordinary paranoia and hallucinations and, and that kind of thing. So at the same time, th all this collided, the pandemic collided with all this. And 
isolated people, brought pe made people alone, recovering addicts, relapsed, there was no one around to help them. And so what you've seen is an enormous leap in overdose deaths in the last year. And I'm sure 2021 is going to show somewhat similar numbers. We like to say that this podcast is about who gets what and why. So I had a, a pair of questions for you. I wanted to ask you, how profitable is drug trafficking and who is it profitable for? Well, certainly there's an enormous population of people in Mexico that are profiting from it. Um, again, though, it, it's very similar to the opioid epidemic. There are certain people uh, near the top, I think, that are uh, benefiting, you know, have always benefited more. At the bottom, what I think you're seeing in Mexico is, is a proliferation of producers, both fentanyl and methamphetamine, because they are making fentanyl now in Mexico. At first, they got it from China, but China curtailed all that. And so now they're getting just the chemicals from China and they're making it uh, uh, there. It's uh, uh, very much a kind of a wild west. We think of these groups as, as cartels. You know, we call them cartels. They're not cartels. OPEC was a cartel, right? It, it reduced supply to pr force prices up. And you remember, or maybe you don't, but the 1970s when, when they did that and the prices went skyrocketing and there were lines of gas stations. Well, that is not what's happening in Mexico. There is a proliferation of, of producers. The cartels act as cartels really uh, when it comes to violence and, and enforcing their will. But when it comes to production, it's really uh, every man for himself and all these new people can enter and, and all that. And, and it's really made, I think, just as the gold rush, people who got wealthy in the gold rush where the folks who were selling the shovels to the people mining the gold. I think nowadays the people are getting really wealthy down in Mexico or the people who are selling the chemicals to the people who are making the stuff. And the, the response at the lower at, at, at the lower ends, the levels of, of Mexican drug production has been to, as prices drop, as they have, say, with meth, to make more of it. It's like a kind of constant glut economy down there right now. And so because these are folks who, who for whom drug trafficking has been a ticket out of poverty into or out of rural, you know, work into um, something akin to the middle class or maybe even the upper middle class. And, and there's no way they're going back to, to, the, to the ranch. If one lab was making me this and now the price is half that. Well, I'll make two or three to make up for that. And, and, and that's, that's where you're getting this glut. That's where you're seeing prices so low over the last few years uh, and, and meth come to areas that never, ever had it all across the country. You know, I, I don't mean to, but to make light of this, Sam, but, but what you've been describing here sounds to me like free market capitalism. Yeah, no, that's absolutely what it is. And it's, uh, it's just kind of a, you know, the, the, the underworld is the most, it's the most imitative and it, at times can be the most innovative, a fast moving yeah. uh, part of part of our economy. It's, it's extraordinarily imitative. Once I, I did one of the chapters in the book, as you know, is, uh, is about how everybody decided that the great way to make mix fentanyl was with a magic bullet blender. And pretty soon everybody is mixing these powders, one of which is extraordinarily deadly to human beings in a magic bullet blender that you buy for $29.95 Target. Right. And um, that was a, that was where an example of everybody just kind of hearing that and going, oh, OK, sure, I'll do that. You know, and, and, and a extraordinary imitation and coffee grinders and all that kind of stuff. These things are, are uniformly bad at mixing powders. Right. And, and that's why we got a lot of those cluster deaths early on. If you remember fentanyl in Cincinnati and West Virginia, you have like 40 or 70 overdoses in a three day period. That's why. On the other hand, there's enormous innovation and people are constantly finding new little ways 
Some of them are kind of more visionary types. I would say that when it comes to methamphetamine, uh, Nacho Coronel, who was a, a Mexican Sinaloan uh, drug capo, um, kind of was like the visionary. What we can do with methamphetamine, we can make our drugs now. We don't need to rely on, you know, growing them. And that was a long, long time ago. He was, he was killed by the military in 2010, and then everybody imitated what he did. So it's, it's extraordinarily fast moving, though. It's, whatever it is, if it's imitative or it's innovative, it's very fast moving. And absolutely, it's, it's all part of, you know, uh, unfettered free market capitalism. It's, as long as you can get those chemicals, and you know a little bit about what you're doing, or you have a guy who's worked on a few labs and can help you, then you can make meth too. You can make fentanyl too. And they've done a fantastic job of reducing the price of a highly sought after commodity. That's, that's right. And that's, that's what those have become now. They have become commodities. That's right. And that is why it's a good point you bring up. That is why my feeling is the ten, natural tendency and again, I don't know how articulate this is down there. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's somebody with a with the, with the you know the kind of the vision of all this, but it's a natural tendency towards t- trying to f- move away from commodification of what you're making, and that is why they're making counterfeit pills now filled with fentanyl. Probably the underworld has always understood our American love affair with pills, dating back to really like Valium, you know, in the '60s, right? Since then, we've always been just kind of accepting of pill. Doctor says, use it. Okay, I'll use it. You pull a pill out at a party, nobody's going to be uh, horrified as they would if you pulled out a little baggie of heroin or whatever. So I think the trafficking world long realized this, but never had access to it. It's only pharmaceutical companies that had access to this, our love affair of pills and our belief that they kind of solved all our problems. You know, everything's fine now. One guy I talked to a couple of days ago, at a methadone clinic in Eastern Tennessee, it was out there. And, and he said, it was like the Holy Grail. It's the Holy Grail. It's a pill. But instead of taking five Percocets a day, all I need to take is one of these fentanyl pills that look like a Percocet, and I'll be good for 12 hours. You know, so it's like he called it the Holy Grail. It's like you could get all your sickness taken care of, and it's dirt cheap. Uh, of course, if it's badly mixed, you'll die. But one of the things that I thought made such a huge difference uh, in, in Dreamland was talking about the way that American companies were implicated, you know, perfectly yeah. legal companies uh, uh, that were admired in the corporate community. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the implication of companies uh, in your new book. What I began to, what I, want, what I should have done, frankly, in, in Dreamland, had my brain had any capacity for this at that time, which it did not, was to, along with studying all this other stuff, was really try to understand the neuroscience of all this, um, of addiction and how the brain works when it's, when it's hijacked by, by drugs, but then also how the brain works when it's affected by legal substances that are highly addictive. And that's, that's really what I'm seeing uh, in, in this new book, is that we live in a time when corporations, certain corporations at least, behave like drug traffickers and drug traffickers behave like corporations, you know, with the counterfeit pills and all that kind of stuff. And, and that is really where I began to, um, uh, you know, I, there was some real learning on my part that went on, uh, you know, talking with neuroscientists and how this all works. But the understanding was the same, that, that uh, sugar, for example, sh- uh, processed sugar hits the same receptors as does the opioid molecule, as does, as does heroin. And they did a, a, an experiment at, at Princeton years ago in which they give 
sugar-dependent rats, they give sugar-dependent rats the drug naloxone. Naloxone is when it's used with uh, overdose victims, it revives them, brings them out, sends them into withdrawals usually. Uh, and, but it's, it's a way of reviving someone who's gonna die of an overdose. That's exactly what happened to the rats that were on sugar. They give them naloxone, and all of a sudden they go into withdrawal, and they're they're twitching and all that. But they're they're um, it's it's a remarkable thing to think that that what we have in our economy today, particularly given all the stuff that's so illegal and 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 produced for our our consumption and fine tuned also, right? So liter bottles of Pepsi, um, fast food, a variety of ways all kinds of processed foods that you find in the middle of, of the supermarket, but not just that, of course, social media, video games, really, you're not going to convince me that that's almost like heroin, honest to God. These companies understand neuroscience. It's one of the most important things we can learn today is how our brains actually work. And there's such a neuroscience golden age of research going on right now. It's really amazing, exciting, fascinating stuff. And these companies know it or and probably knew it, have known it for, for a long time. And so they are constantly prodding these products that they produce. And whatever it is, it could be a could be a service like social media, like Facebook or TikTok or whatever, or it could be a, something that we literally consume, like Pepsi or whatever. Um, but they know, or casinos, where they they totally kind of oh, yeah. engineered those things. And to me, that that's where we are now. We are bombarded on one hand, more, far more commonly by legal addictive products, by a whole array of corporations we can all probably name. And then on the underworld, we're of course, you know, bombarded by the stuff coming out of Sinaloa. And so the Sinaloa drug cartel takes its place, as I wrote in the book, alongside the Facebook and TikTok engineer, the casino designer, the porno maker, the, 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 the alcohol and cigarette manufacturers and, and all that kind of stuff. So to me, that's, that was really, I took it from, in Dreamland focus, really mostly on Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. And I began to say, no, there's a bigger thing going on out there. Purdue and the Sacklers are kind of small potatoes almost in this, in this larger story. And the larger story is all these ways in which companies uh, have made, that, that they know will attack our brains and, 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 and prod our brains to, to use them, to buy them constantly, that kind of thing. I was wondering if you could talk about any any uh, lessons that you've taken from from writing this book that you want readers to take from this book, and also if there are any policy solutions that you think are are would be especially meaningful for leaders to take in. Well, I'll talk about some policy. That I think um, uh, you know, there's three chapters in my book about one county that has uh, uh, been experimenting with a new way of doing jail. I believe the opioid epidemic is really calling on us to understand what a damaging thing jail, the way we do it traditionally, has been. It's not that you get away, uh, get rid of jail. Um, you know, the drug that brings most people to jail is legal. It's alcohol. You know, so we're always going to have jail. It's just how you do it. And up to now, it's been a vegetative place where you just park for nine months. You watch Judge Judy. You sleep a lot. Maybe you get into some tiffs. Maybe you start comparing notes on how to do your crime better. There's nothing good about the time spent in jail. And that's what people have come to realize during this whole opioid epidemic, I think. And it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing to, to see. And so these small counties, very, very conservative counties, by the way, most of these places are now experimenting with recovery pods so that you can begin recovery. Instead of watching Judge Judy all day long, you can actually begin to take you know 12-step meetings education class, get your GED, these kinds of things. So jail is no longer this 
burden that we've had to bear, this cost that we've had to bear, it becomes more likely to be an investment. It does require a complete change of mind, right? You have to have the right jailer. You have to have the right uh, sheriff or county commissioners, and you have to have the right per people to run it. And that's not always possible. That's the, that talent pool wasn't always there. But when it is there, um, you can start doing a lot of very exciting things. And then once you do, as they did in Kenton County that I wrote about in The Least of Us mm -hmm. in Kentucky, what they begin to figure out is, oh, it's not just here. We need to provide services on the outside, too, because people were spending nine months doing really well in this pod. And then they get out and um, in three, three hours, they'd be, you know, they'd be on the bus into town. They'd, they'd meet an old buddy and pretty soon they're getting high and the whole three, nine months is wasted. They began to understand that this is a much more um, that, that we need to have a community of recovery. So uh, services designed to help those folks getting out of jail now that we're doing jail a bit better than we used to and, and, and provide ways for them to if you have if you're arrested in August, you have certain kinds of clothes. You've been on the street by the time January runs around, those clothes won't won't work. And also, you probably gained a lot of weight because you mean you know, all those carbohydrates. So you're going to need new clothes. That kind of stuff is 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 what you know, a community begins to think of this stuff and pretty soon it begins to think, begins to advance in that way. And I think that's what's going on in some of these counties. I think that's absolutely want, um, a big deal. But I would say that overall, just answering the, the first part of your question, that what the process of writing Dreamland and now made me really clued me into this, that, that, that really what this is about is that we have been on a 40 year march of destroying community in, in this country. And it happened with lots of jobs that went overseas. And it wasn't just that they went overseas. It was that, well, we just said, oh, well, it's kind of the, the will of the market. So what are we going to, there wasn't really much done about it. You know, there wasn't much done to help the people who, who lost those jobs, you know, and those communities that lost all their downtown businesses and were then replaced by Walmart. You know, we didn't do much about that. Right. And I would say that there's a lot of other ways we have not built infrastructure. The reason I called the last book Dreamland was because it was about this swimming pool that was really the heart and soul of the town. And then once the deindustrialization process begins, people leave, everybody leaves, it's, you know, and they have to destroy the pool. And what comes in its place is, is Walmart is the one place where everybody now sees each other, which they used to see them so, each other all the time at the pool. And of course, you know, you're very, very exposed because you don't have those community bulwarks that really existed uh, or 10 years earlier to prevent this kind of drug uh, uh, problem from, from spreading. We've, we've left ourselves in many areas, not just in economically devastated areas, but also in wealthy suburbs, I think very, very exposed. And, and it's really about community rebuilding, which sounds to a lot of people like it's just too big. And, and so... The, the point of the book, half of the book really, um, is really taken up with stories, as I said, of people doing small, unnoticed, unsexy uh, Americans involved in community repair, stories of Americans involved in some small way in community repair. Not that this is a prescription, not that they should follow what's in the book, but rather the message is small steps, just like those people coming out of the shadows uh, for so long where they, they resided for so long and all of those small steps out of the shadows now five years later leads to um, all these people all these companies having to actually be accountable for what they've done and it, it's now actually i believe a kind of a cautionary tale to lots of, uh, of business in america you better watch this kind of stuff make sure you're not doing the opioid making the opioid mistake 
it's this it's the idea is if we small stuff is the in daily stuff just like an addict in recovery not saving the world you're not changing the world you're just making these small steps maybe it's at a very local level in your church on your in your neighborhood uh at your school whatever it's that kind of stuff and so i found those kinds of stories only by way of saying that's what we got, we've gotten away from. We're looking for big, splashy answers to all our problems when really the best political change, the best cultural and economic change, in my opinion, comes in these small, small ways. And so that's why I called it the least of us. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, the least smallest little effort or it's, it's we're as, only as vulnerable, we're as, only as strong as the least of us. We're only as strong as those that grocery store clerk who may or may not have health insurance who comes to work anyway, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, or that, that meatpacking worker, all of a sudden we discover is an essential worker, but doesn't have any, 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 any safety net to speak of at all. Right. You know, this kind of stuff yeah. is, is where I think we need to be focused and, and far less on Twitter with all that anger and all that crap is get rid of that crap, get rid of cable news. It's just like heroin and, and focus on our neighborhoods and our schools or, you know, houses of worship, that kind of thing. And that is really where I come down on all this. So one final question for you, Sam, why do you do this work? Uh, I love it. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to figure out anything I could possibly do that I've been high for 34 years, man. <laughs> Every day I get up, I get to be a journalist, man. I get to, I get to go. I don't, you know, and what's more, I get to hear the most amazing damn stories every day or week or so. And it's just incredible to me, the profundity of the stuff that I encounter. And what kills me most of all is that I don't have time to write about it all because there's just too, too much of it. You know, I was in a, in a methadone clinic in Eastern Tennessee a couple of days ago, and I was listening to these amazing stories of people, um, resilience, deeply broken folks sometimes, you know, and before that, a week before that, I was talking with a van, with a, um, with a neuroscientist uh, about this minute little experiment that he was doing at Vanderbilt uh, University. I'm, I don't think I'll ever be rich, but I'm going to, I've been more fulfilled than any human being actually ever has a right to feel, I think sometimes. And, and it, it allows me to, um, you know, I've always made my, my focus uh, folks who are really not famous, and that's where the beauty of the of the of the profession lies. The stories there are so profound and so beautiful. And I, um, my mom told me when I was in ninth grade, she said, most important thing you can do as you get into adulthood is focus on finding a job that you love because it's going to infect. If you have a bad job you hate, it's going to infect how much you sleep, your romantic really every other part of your life. And I, I never forgot that. And when I found journalism several years after college, frankly, I, I stand in awe of it sometimes. It's so exciting and fun and, and fulfilling and challenging. And I'm always, I'm never going to be a good writer. I'm always going to be trying to be, you know, reach another, another level. And I find that to be just a wonderful way to live. It don't think of it as work. I think of it as, as, as the most, beautiful thing I could be involved in. And, and with Dreamland, my two previous books, by the way, um, the first two books, I'm very, very proud of them. Uh, but, you know, nobody read them. And, um, and, and it were about, they were about stories about Mexico, very much like Dreamland and that kind of thing. Uh, stories about Mexico and about Mexican 
immigration. Nobody read them. And so with Dreamland, it finally kind of many years into my career, you know, 30 plus, almost 30 years into my career, all of a sudden it was actually having a, a fairly, you know, a, a, not fairly, a really profound impact on people's lives and on the, on policy and on, on political uh, races and all that kind of stuff. People were bringing it up and I was hugging mothers at er almost every speech I gave and on the book. And it was, it was wonderful, wonderful and moving and, and again, profound to be a part of that. And that's wonderful. And, but it was also just, I'd be doing it anyway. I mean, it's just, it, it's such a, uh, an exciting thing to do. And I feel sorry, frankly, I really feel sorry for journalists coming up today because I don't believe that they are getting the same training or experience. It's all, everything is, um, you come at it with a political point of view and the best stories you don't find when you, you find only when you leave your politics at the door or far away. And you, you just go with most of the, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm fairly independent politically. I'm fairly, um, I guess, liberal leaning, you know, on a lot of things. And I spent most of the last six years with, with people who ended up voting for Donald Trump, um, whom I love. And I think they're wonderful, wonderful people. And it, it's a, a, a process of you saying, I want to focus on the person and not on what Twitter and Fox and CNN says is important that I should focus on. And so all of that is also part of the, the job description, in my opinion. You've got to let go where the facts and the, the, the immersion take you and not battle against it, I guess. So that's long answer, probably. All my answers no, are that, wrong, that, I guess. <laughs> no, that was, that, was, that was wonderful. And uh, I think the love really shows through uh, in, in your work. And I just think they're Thanks, really, Paul. I appreciate they're it. really impressive really nice work. And we went long, and I'm sorry about that. But thank you so much for, for Oh, my pleasure. So I'll your talk about this for another two hours. It's really nice of you guys. I appreciate the interest. And, uh, and uh, good luck with, uh, with the, what is actually a, a fantastic podcast already. Thank you. Wow, you know, I've met a lot of journalists in my life, but uh, he has to be just like one of the most talented, sort of passionate journalists I think I've ever talked to. I just really that was a that was a great conversation with somebody who absolutely understands like every level of this crisis. Yeah, and and you know, one of the things, Paul, that stood out for me is that you know this is an economics podcast. Uh, we're doing an episode about opioid addiction, and I understand all the ways that that is fed by uh, uh, extreme inequality uh, in our economy and our uh, unwillingness to invest in the types of uh, services we need to deal with mental health and addiction and homelessness and so forth. And we've talked about a lot of that in other episodes. But what struck me from our conversation was how much Sam was describing really textbook uh, uh, free market economics. Uh, you mm. know, both on one side, you've got the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, this regulated pharmaceutical industry, and the way, you know, you know this wasn't an unintended uh, consequence of 
these new prescription opioid drugs. This was the intent. They marketed these. They were trying to create a market for their drugs, and they had to know, as he as he pointed out, they know the science of addiction, just like the fast food companies and the casinos and everybody else, they're trying to create compulsion so you buy their products. And what better way to do that than with an addictive substance? But also the way he described the um, synthetic drug industry coming out of Mexico, this is like this classic example of how you take this largely agricultural-based industry where you're growing coca and marijuana and uh, uh, opium poppies and so forth. And now it's modernizing and industrializing and you're branching out into processing and distribution and shipping. And eventually uh, it totally industrializes into this synthetic uh, drug industry. And it's very high value and efficient and they've increased productivity and they're dramatically reducing prices and you take what was, when I was a kid, these were expensive drugs and people would bankrupt themselves uh, buying them now into this really cheap, widely available, uniform commodity. And that is what unfettered market capitalism does. And sometimes it, it does it to the benefit of all because it takes a product that we, that we all need and makes our lives better and makes it uh, more cheaply available. And, and sometimes... It, it does it with uh, fentanyl and methamphetamine. Yeah, if you were to strip out the context of what he was saying, he could have been describing almost any Silicon Valley company or something like that. It would have been framed as a success story in, in, in right. Forbes or something like that. Yeah. And here's the sad irony. For many, many years, the Sacklers were promoted as a success story. Uh, they were celebrated. They had their names on museums and they were known for their philanthropy because they were the, the, the legal drug dealers. But really, in the end, they weren't, they weren't much different and any more innovative than the, uh, the Mexican synthetic drug industry leaders. The work he's doing, providing context and everything, makes it clear how how ridiculous that old uh, "just say no" idea of approaching drug use is. These are these are systems that are put in place to addict people uh, and to profit off of addicting people. Until we understand that that these systems are in place and that they are very good at what they do, we can't really make a change. Uh, we can't really fix the problems that are caused by these situations. If we keep pretending that this is an individual problem and not a systemic one, we're really just sort of trying to fight back a flood by, you know, bailing ourselves out with the Dixie cup. You know, for somebody who's spent as many years as he has, you know, observing human misery, I was very impressed by what he had to say about community and about, you know, solving the problem on the community level and and taking little steps to build your way out of it. It seemed like, you know, that that's a lesson that doesn't just apply to the opioid epidemic, but it all, you know, it's it's what good politicians do is they start in communities and build out. And uh, so the fact that after three decades of of observing all this stuff, he still thinks that there is there is hope, and he has he has examples of how to do this uh, was I thought really inspirational given the the heavy topic of his book. 
And just so you know, Sam's latest book is out today. So please get it from an indie bookstore or your local library. And as always, we'll put a link in the show notes. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.